Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Today we start a new series called Light Ahead, A Future as Bright as the Promises of God. We are in a dark time right now. We don't know where the end of the tunnel is. We don't know what the light at the end of the tunnel is going to look like. We don't know when it's coming or how it's coming or how things are going to change when that light comes. In fact, we don't even know what the light looks like. But as the people of God, we can focus our faith not just on our circumstances changing, but on God's unchanging promises on God's unchanging promises. And if we do that, we will find that there is light ahead. And our hope will grow as we see the very things that God has committed himself to, the things that God is loyal to, the agenda that God has set for himself and his purposes, and the promises that God has bound to keep. That quote, A future as bright as the promises of God comes from a missionary named Adoniram Judson. He was born in the state of Massachusetts and ended up spending his life in the country of Burma, we call Miramar also, uh, sharing the gospel. I know that the history of Western missions is sorted with colonization, but let me tell you this story about Judson. He was born in 1788. His father was a minister, but as he grew older, he found himself doubting in the Christian faith and eventually walked away. He was a brilliant man, and he was able to talk other people out of believing in the the gospel as well. And one of his closest friends at college, he talked out of believing in Jesus. Well, that all changed for Judson one night in 1808. Judson was traveling. And he stopped at an inn, and there were no rooms in the inn except one. And the innkeeper said, I don't want to give you this room because it's next to a man who is really sick, and you are going to hear him crying out in pain all night. Judson said, I'm so tired. I'll take the room. Just give it to me. And at that moment, he went into the room, and he began to hear the man crying out in pain. Well, the next morning, after hearing the man during the night, he went to the innkeeper and said, what happened to that man next door? And Judson was told by the innkeeper, well, he died. He died in the night. And the innkeeper went on to say, it's so sad because he had so much promise. He was a graduate of such and such university. And Judson said, that's where I went to college. What was that man's name? And the innkeeper told him the name of the man. And it was Judson's friend. It was Adoniram Judson's friend who he had talked out of the faith. That was such a sobering moment for Judson. It completely changed his life. On his journey, he rededicated himself to God, realized that he did believe in the God of the Bible. He did believe in Jesus Christ and rededicated himself to God and his purposes, committing to bring the gospel to somewhere around the world. Well, in 1812, when he was in his early 20s, he was married And he was ordained as a minister, and him and his new wife set sail for India from the United States. When they got to India, they were immediately met with hard circumstances because the British government that was ruling there, uh, the colonizers that were there, said, we don't want you to share the gospel here. 
That was challenging. And so they had to find somewhere else to go. It was even more challenging because on the four-month journey from Massachusetts to India, his wife had miscarried a baby. So they land fresh, ready to serve the Lord in India, having lost a baby and finding out that they're not even welcome there. Well, they decided to go further east to Burma. And they were told by other missionaries, listen, we've tried Burma and the gospel. It just doesn't take there. You are wasting your time at an Iram. Well, they went anyway. They went anyway to Burma. And him and his wife spent 12 hours a day studying the Burmese language and the Burmese culture. They were cut off from Western influences for three years because they so wanted to serve the people there and get to know them and know the language. But even after that time, the Burmese around them still just viewed them as foreigners and as irrelevant. Well, in 1818, Judson started public evangelism. And the following year, he had his first worship service. Fifteen people showed up at that first worship service. But about halfway through, Judson could tell they were not interested at all and could not wait to leave. Well, surprisingly, a glimmer of hope, because during that time, uh, they baptized their first Burmese believer, the first person to believe the gospel and follow Jesus. They baptized, but largely their ministry was met with indifference to the gospel. Well, during that time, tragedy struck again. Judson's second child died at just eight months old. But the ministry grew a little bit. In 1822, they now had 18 believers. But then hardship came again. The British-Burmese War started, and though Judson was not a Brit, he was an American, he was taken as a spy. And because they believed him, he was a spy, they imprisoned him for almost two years. Now his wife, Anne, lobbied for her, his release. During that time, she was sick herself, and she had their third child that Judson had never met. But she pushed and pushed for his release until finally in 1826, the war ended and he was released, only to meet tragedy again. Anne died shortly after his release. His beloved wife that had traveled with him from the United States died. And then tragedy struck again as their third child died six months later. The ministry grew a little bit more as there were more believers who were baptized, but the Burmese government forced Judson to be a translator for them. In 1835, Judson remarried a woman named Sarah, and they had a season of just joy. Their family grew. They had eight children, but only five of those children reached adulthood, and Anne's health began to fail, or sorry, Sarah's health began to fail. They decided to go back to the U.S. so that she could get healthy again. But en route to the U.S. by boat, Sarah died. His second wife had died. Judson decided to go on back to the United States. He was trying to raise support for his mission work. And this was in a day when that type of thing was not really done. So he was not only pioneering in Burma, but pioneering this idea of being a missionary well, Judson himself suffered from a pulmonary illness. And so when he got to the United States, he was trying to talk to people and raise support, but he could barely raise his voice. And so most of his support raising was done through someone who spoke on his behalf. Well, in 1846, Judson married a third time. 
a third time, a woman named Emily. But shortly after that, in 1850, Judson died of lung disease. Such a tragic life in one sense, so many hardships, so many challenges, so many trials. But at the end of Judson's life, he had finished translating the entire Bible into Burmese. He had this wonderful gift for the people of Burma that he had translated the Bible into their language. There were a hundred churches that existed in the country and over 8,000 followers of Jesus. 8,000 followers of Jesus that had that had converted and grown up to the, into these little churches. You, you see the tension, right? You feel the tension, right? A future as bright as the promises of God. And yet Judson's life was so challenging. Uh, we are in a challenging time. It may get more challenging. And yet there is hope in what God has committed himself to do. The future is as bright as the promises of God. Let's read today. First, or sorry, 2 Peter 1. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God, of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. The word of the Lord. The future is as bright as the promises of God. Our God is a God who makes and keeps promises. He is a God of promise. Just the fact that he has created the world and he's created the world in a way that it is only sustained by his ongoing commitment shows us that he is a God of promises. Just the fact that he has made the world and it relies on him, that in him we live and move and have our being, shows that he is a God who is committed to the promises that he makes. He's also a God who has purposes in that world. The deist view says that God is removed from the world, but God is fully involved in the world. He has committed himself to a story that he is playing out in the world. I mean, the whole scripture is really about God's promises, his commitment, his agenda that he is working out in the world. Here are these scriptures just from the very beginning of the Bible. After Adam and Eve fall into sin as they are deceived by the serpent, in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Speaking to the serpent, he says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God is saying that evil will not run freely in his world, that sin will not run freely, but that he will bring someone to stop it because he is committed and he has made promises. In Genesis 9:15, after sin runs rampant and he brings the judgment through the flood, he makes a promise to Noah. In Genesis 9:15, he says, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Water again will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. And then we begin to see that story that he has 
promised to bring to expression. We begin to see that take place in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. We see that God is committed to bringing this story to expression in this broken world and that he's promised to use Abraham's family and offspring to do it. God is a God of promise. He makes promises. He keeps promises. And because there's nothing greater than himself, he swears by himself when he makes those promises. In Hebrews 6.13, the writer says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Uh, God is a God of promise. In verse four in our passage, verse three and four, it says that God has called us by his own glory and goodness and by his glory and goodness, he has given us promises. What that means is part of the weight of who God is, part of the moral excellence of his character is that he is a God who makes and keeps promises. You can't remove that from who he is. And so part of knowing God is knowing his promises. As you think about God, you think about a God who makes and keeps promises. Sometimes we have this ambiguous view of God as if he's just up there doing something and we don't really know what he's like. But that's not what the Bible says about God. He is a God who makes and keeps promises. And the amazing thing is he doesn't hide these promises from us. He gives them to us. God's promises are for us to grasp onto and live our lives according to. In verse 4, he says, he has given us very great and precious promises. He has given us. If you receive a gift from someone, you don't just let it sit there. You open it. You put it to work. You implement it into your life. And that's what we're called to do with these promises because they're not ordinary promises. They are very great and precious promises. What that means is that they are valuable. Uh, they are important. If you had a gift that you knew was worth a lot and was important and would change your life, would you leave it there on the table or would you rip it open and implement it in, in, in your life? I hope that it would be the second because once you begin to understand the promises of God and you begin to center your life on what he has committed to do, you will find that even in dark times, there is hope. When you feel like quitting, there is now energy to persevere. There is light in the midst of darkness because we have very great and precious promises. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Listen to just a few of these promises. One of the promises that is that good works will happen through us. In Ephesians 1.10, Paul says, 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God's works will happen through us. He promises that. Another promise is that, is that Satan's attacks are real, but God is greater. In 1 John 4, 4, John writes, You are from God, little children, and you have com conquered them because the one who is in you, that's God, is greater than the one who is in the world, that's Satan. Satan's attacks are real, but God promises that he is greater than Satan and his attacks. And then listen to this one. God will prop us up in trials and challenges and hardships. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about this conversation he had with Jesus. And Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. How would it change your life if you believed in the midst of trials and challenges that Christ's grace was on you because he promised it? God's promises are for us. They're for us to implement in our lives. They're for us to know and study and base our lives around because they are very great and they are precious promises. Now, there has been some confusion in the church about the purpose of God's promises. It has been trending to see those promises as personally focused guarantees of God's blessing over whatever we want. And people have treated the promises of God as if it's like a buffet that you can go to and pick and choose what you want. Put a little bit more of, of that promise in my life. I'll take a little bit more of that promise, just a little bit more. And then what people do is they name it and claim it. They, they say, in Jesus' name, I do declare that this is going to happen. And they rip the, the promises of God out of the context that they're intended to by God. Bryce Hales says that, our spirituality has been an exercise in self-fulfillment. And, and what that means is often when we think about God or we think about the promises of God, we think more about inviting God into our life and partnering with him so that he can give us the best life that we want. And that's not at all what God's about, and that's not at all what his promises are about. God is inviting us to partner with him. And when we do that, he is committed to make us more like he is. See, the promises of God are less about what God gives me, and they're really about more of God in me. They're less about what God gives me and more about God in me, changing me, making me more like him and more like his son, Jesus. And that's what Peter gets to in verse 4. He says, so that through them, through the promises, you may share in the divine nature. In other words, God is making us more like him. Now, that doesn't mean we're little gods. That's been a misinterpretation that we're little gods. We are not gods. We are human beings, and God alone is God. Yet God is committed to make us more like him, to restore the broken image of God in us. In fact, in Ephesians 4, through 24, Paul says this, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. 
God's ultimate goal is to establish his kingdom on earth through the work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and to redeem a people for his purposes so that those people could become citizens of his kingdom and represent him here on earth in the midst of this broken world, in the midst of this broken moment. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And we're often so confused about the promises of God. We often think that the promises of God are, are there to give us the very sinful desires of our heart. But that's not what Paul, Peter says at all. Look what he says in verse 4. He continues and says that we are escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. See, many people think the promises of God are all about gratifying their flesh, all about getting exactly what their twisted hearts want. But Peter writes, no. When God makes you more like him, you're able to be his representative in the world while at the same time escaping the corrupt desires that are in the world. That is to say, in a world that is full of injustice, God is making us more like him. He is making us into a people who love justice. In a world that is unrighteous, he is making us like him. We are becoming more and more righteous through the work of grace and the spirit in us. In a world of, of uh, a sexual smorgasbord, you do whatever you want. We are becoming pure like God. In, in, a, in, a, in a time where there is no mercy, we are learning to show mercy like God has shown to us. When people are all about their agenda and only partner or talk with people who promote their cause, we are learning to be a people who are impartial. When there is greed that is rampant, the people of God learn to be generous with their things and their money. And in a time when everyone gets what they deserve, we are learning to be like God who is compassionate and gracious and often gives people blessing that they don't deserve. And you might go, well, I am so far from that. And that's the point. This is about what God has committed to do in you and through you because he has promised. Philippians 1.6 says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. This is what God has committed himself to do. This is what God has promised to you, that you would share in his character, that you would be part of his mission here on earth. He doesn't just bless you, he blesses you so that you will be a blessing here in this broken world. See, see, the promises of God are for you, but they're not necessarily about you. Does that make sense? They're, not for, they're for you, but they're not necessarily about you. They're more about what God is doing in you. N.T. Wright says that we often think about religion as what God wants from us, or, or we think about it, what, what we want God to do for us. But he says, listen, the promises of God are really about what God wants for us, what he wants to do in us, what he wants to bring to expression in us and through us. And so we want to be a people of the promises of God. We want to study the promises of God. We want to know the promises of God. And we want to believe the promises of God. And we want to base our life on them. And ultimately, we participate in these promises, not because we're perfect, not because we're strong, but because God is perfect and he is strong and he is committed to the things that he says he is committed to. You and I are sinful, weak people who often struggle to believe and move forward in faith. And yet we're 
able to limp forward following the promises of God because of his strength and commitment to us. And that often includes believing the promises of God in the midst of suffering. Many times when people go through suffering, they go, oh, well, God is not keeping his promises. He has failed me. And let me tell you, suffering is hard and suffering makes all of us wrestle and struggle. But God is still faithful to his promises in the midst of our suffering. I mean, one of the reasons that the Israelites did not enter into the promised land was because they did not believe God, and they did not believe God's promises because of the suffering that they were experiencing. They had had a first, uh, firsthand account of their own rescue from Egypt. They'd seen the power of God. They'd seen God's commitment to them in rescuing them from the oppressors of Egypt. But once they got out of Egypt and they got into the desert, they began to struggle and question if God was going to keep his promises. And because they didn't believe God's promises, they were not able to enter into the promised land. An entire generation died out in the desert and their children entered instead of them. But we don't want to be like that. We want to be those who believe the promises of God and pursue the promises of God and rest in them. So even if you're in the midst of suffering, continue to believe the promises of God. Know the promises of God. Understand them. One of the reasons that we think God has failed is because we're mistaken on what the promises are actually about. There's a saying that's become popular, which is, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And I, I love that on one level because it's so hopeful and gets me excited about everything that God is going to do. At the same time, we have to really define what the best is in the best is yet to come. Because there's something in us that wants to say, well, the best is me getting rich. The best in the best is yet to come is me finally having the life I want. It's me getting the influence I want or the followers I want or my life being set up as I see fit. And God never promises those things to us. Uh, in fact, God promises that our lives are going to be hard and challenging, but he will never leave us or forsake us. And so we have to be careful that we're not setting ourselves up to not believe God because we misunderstand the promises of God. I mean, when Jesus showed up to Paul and Paul said, can you deliver me from this trial? Jesus said, no, but I will, I will give you grace every day when you wake up. And so the best is yet to come. For Paul, that was fresh grace every day when he woke up out of bed. And even for Adoniram Judson, even for him, you know, after his first wife died, if you had told him, well, the best is yet to come, he would have continued to suffer. He lost two more wives and many more children. And yet God used him in the midst of hardship. He did things that Judson couldn't have even imagined, but they were things for his kingdom and for the gospel and using Judson in ways that he could not uh, produce on his own. See, here's the hard truth that you have to understand if you're going to get the promises of God. The promises of God don't always mean that God is going to rescue us out of suffering. Rather, the promises of God are that he's going to be with us through suffering, that he will not abandon us, that he will walk with us no matter what comes our way. I mean, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for God himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. 
Even in the midst of poverty, God is not going to abandon us. Even in the midst of death, he is still victorious. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has defeated sin and death and the devil through his death and resurrection. See, even in the suffering of death, Jesus still wins. And we are part of that victory at the final resurrection. And even as we do suffer, we can begin to see God's hand in the midst of the suffering. That is to say, we begin to understand that God is actually using the suffering to do what he's promised, to make us more like him. In Hebrews 12, the author writes, Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. But he who does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness, we can become more like him. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We can trust these things even in the midst of suffering. Because all of God's promises ultimately come to full expression through Jesus Christ. All of God's promises are yes and amen through Jesus, the one who suffered for us. That is to say that everything that God has promised comes to its fullest expression through the work of the Messiah, Jesus. The kingdom of God is established on earth through Jesus. God's glory is put on display through the cross of Jesus Christ. Justice and righteousness come to fruition on earth through the ministry of Jesus and the spirit, the promised spirit is ultimately poured out through Jesus' ascension and sending the spirit. And that great promise, the great promise of a lasting forgiveness comes through Jesus' suffering for us on the cross. Jeremiah 31 is full of promises, but in verse 34, it says, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. And that comes to fullest expression through Jesus, through him going to the cross for our sins, taking the punishment we deserve. See, all the promises of God are more about what God is doing and his commitment through Jesus Christ. They're not activated once we believe enough. God has already put these things into motion. God's promises don't start once we have a strong enough faith. Rather, the backing for those promises is a God who is strong. They don't turn off when we feel far from God because God himself has promised that he is always near. So as we go through the season, let's study the promises of God. Let's know the promises of God, but let's believe them and implement them in our life. One of the reasons that Judson and his story had become so dear to me was because I experienced the fruit of his work firsthand. He had suffered so much over 200 years ago when he was doing uh, the work of the church and the work of the gospel and the work of the kingdom there in Burma. But that man's faith in believing the promises of God caused him to pursue those promises and more and more people became Christians. The last I counted, there were three million Christians in Burma and many more that were spread around the world who came from the country of Burma. And I got to experience friendship with some of those Burmese Christians firsthand. 
many of our friends who were in part of our church in St. Louis had been refugees that had fled Burma and come to the United States. And they were Christians because of Judson's faithfulness to the promises of God 200 years ago. They, they, were, they were there because God had kept his promise and he had used Adoniram Judson. And I learned so much from these people who believed God. Their simple faith deeply affected me because they simply believed what God said. And I watched them walk through incredible hardship and suffering, being separated from their families. But just like Judson, they chose to believe the promises of God. I'm forever affected by those Burmese Christians that I met in St. Louis, and therefore I'm forever affected by Judson, and more so forever affected by the promises of God. That's my hope for you during this next season as we explore the light ahead, a future as bright as the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your promises. We pray that as we study them, they would become more and more dear to us and that we would center our lives more fully around them. Thank you for these very great and precious promises. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.